Welcome to New Life, everybody. Glad to have you guys here with us. Yeah, I just need to ask all of those that worship me with us at the Kearney campus and the North Platte campus, how many of you guys are excited to be at church today? Come on. Right on. It's a great day. Last Sunday, we celebrated graduations out at the North Platte campus. This Sunday, we're celebrating graduations here at our Kearney campus. Um, it might feel a little light at the Kearney campus today, and that's because probably all of the graduates were in the first service, and now they're heading off to what they're doing. But just in case, are there any graduates here at our Kearney campus today? And if there are, we want to recognize you. Otherwise, can we just give it a round of applause for our graduates? Come on. Yeah. What? Hold on. Stand longer. We have, oh yeah. All right. Love it. All right. We scored one. Scored one for the West, the West venue. Thank you very much. Score is now, I don't know, but we're probably winning here in the West, so that's good. Hey, we're in our current teaching series, Darkroom, and uh, this series is all about these difficult, challenging times that God takes us through or allows us to walk through that build Christ-centered character. That's his objective, right? His outcome for it is that we would later then stand on a stage that he's created for us where we would use our influence to impact the world around us. What are we going to impact the world with? The character that God builds in the dark room. So the dark room, this difficult, challenging time, character is developed so that character can be tested when we're on the stage. Um, but there's many more things that we need to learn from this teaching series. We only have this week and, and uh, one more week after this. And then we're wrapping this teaching series up and we're moving on to some other things. A little uh, side note, next teaching series is entitled Unstoppable. Unstoppable. I think there's information about it um, in our newsletter and in our bulletins as well. So you want to take a listen to that. Um, so as we jump into this week, it's just, this week's a little bit different. There's just some things in my heart that I wanted to make sure that you understood about what happens in a dark room because we all go through them. I guarantee you right now, one of the things I know about our church is that everybody has gone through a dark room moment or everybody is going through one. I had lunch with some, uh, a couple of high school students actually yesterday. They were telling me about how impactful the dark room series has been for their personal life. And I've had um, those at our church that are in the more mature years pull me aside after a service and say to me, it's been impactful for me. That, that means that we've got a teaching series that is hitting a heartbeat. It's, it's a pulse of our church right now, and it's hitting multiple different age groups, um, multiple different demographics. God's using this in a powerful way, of which I'm humbled by. But there are some important things that you're going to want to glean um, from, uh, from today's teaching that I think is going to help package this all together. Uh, to, so to get started, I want to take you back to 1974. Who was born, who was alive at least in 1974? Come on. All right, who didn't even know 1974 existed? Okay, graduates as an example. Okay, there you go. Uh, in February 17th, 1974, there was an Army private first class who decided that it was a great idea to steal a helicopter in Fort Meade, Maryland, and to fly the helicopter over to the White House, of which he hovered over the White House for six minutes. This is all documented. It's all in the news. You can go search it. February 17th, 1974, crazy helicopter pilot who hovered over the White House. It will all come up for you. This guy, this Army Private First Class, hovers for six minutes. He doesn't get shot at. Nothing. Don't, I mean, today, if you did that today, wouldn't like missiles rise out of the White House roof and just like drop you to the ground, blow you into a thousand pieces? You couldn't get away with that today. And so 
he, he only leaves because two other helicopters come in to chase him off, and they're from the local police. Well, he flies the helicopter so well that one of the two uh, police helicopters gets downed. They have to land it safely somewhere in the city, and he, and he evades the other helicopter pilot. So he's really good, right? So what does he decide to do? Let's go back to the White House and hover over the White House for a couple of minutes. That makes a lot of sense. So he goes back in about a minute and a half after hovering over the White House. The, the Secret Service guys have enough of this, and they start shooting machine guns at him and, and blowing him up with uh, shotguns. And he gets minorly injured, and he lands the helicopter very softly and very safely on the lawn of the White House. Now, you might be asking yourself the same thing I did when I read the story. Why? Why? Like, why? Why would you even think that that's something you should be doing? Well, let me help answer some of that. First thing is this. Preston, he was 20 years old. Okay, so for all young adults, I apologize to you. But at 20 years old, we pretty much think we got the world by the tail, we got it all figured out, and we got the right ideas. You know what I'm saying? I mean, for all of us that aren't 20 and we look back, and we at least admit that at 20 we thought we had all the answers to everything. Okay, so that's what he thought, right? But here's the real reason why he did it. He had a dream for his life. He wanted to be an Army helicopter pilot. He goes into pilot school, and he washes out of the instrument training portion of the helicopter pilot school. Washes out. They won't let him back in. He has to cross-train to another now job, so he does it in the mechanics of heli- on a helicopter. He gets stationed at the Fort Meade, right next to, you know, in Maryland there. And so one night he decides, you know what, man, I deserve to be back in that, that helicopter pilot school. Like I'm a good pilot. I can't believe those guys kicked me out of that. I know what I'll do. I'll prove to them how good I am. I'll take a helicopter and I'll fly over to the white house and hover over it for a while. Maybe the president will be impressed with me. And, uh, you know, he's, he's the chief commander and then my instructors will have to let me back in to let me be a pilot. No, you spent the night in the psych ward and then you got discharged. That's kind of what goes down when you overreact, overreact, and we can all overreact to something that later then we regret. All of us have the ability to do that. Now, you might, you overreact to things all the time. You might not take a helicopter and fly it over the White House because you're not crazy, okay? Or at least remind the person next to you, okay, they're not crazy, even if you don't know if they are or not, okay? It's just going to make a better worship experience. We all overreact to things. For us, here's some of the things we do. We might throw a pity party for ourselves. I'm sure none of you have ever done that. We've overreacted, you know, oh, woe well, it's me, I can't believe it, pity party for myself. Or we might say something we regret later. Anybody in my camp with me? Okay, all right, no one else is humble enough to admit it. All right. We might overreact and go back to some bad habits, drinking and other self-medicating type of things, right? Because we're just overreacting. It's unfair. It's not right. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to prove to the world that I'm still in charge, right? Or we get angry. Anybody here get angry when you overreact? Um, What about depressed? A number of people get depressed when they overreact or you withdraw from others. You just kind of go into your secret place. Or we say like end of the world statements like, oh my word, this is so bad. It can never, never get any better than this. It's like the end of the world. It's not even worth being here anymore. This is ridiculous. It's never going to get better. You guys ever have those kind of moments, right? Yeah, I got it. Everyone in the West Auditorium is kind of like, dude, just move on to another topic because we've all dealt with it. We're okay. 
This is real life stuff. Overreacting. And overreacting isn't something that was just left to our adolescence or to our young adult years, by the way. Most of our overreacting happens in our adult years. And overreacting is right where we find our main character today in our darkroom teaching series, David. King David. The guy who is still admired to this day, whose tomb is in the old town of Jerusalem. You know, there's statues to him. He's still reverenced and he's still honored. A lot of people look up to him. Um, he, was a, he was a great king. He was a man who made a lot of critical errors and critical mistakes. But the Bible says something about him that you once said about you. And that's this. David was a man after God's own heart. I mean, if you're going to end up in the Bible with anything said about you, Right? If you had that opportunity, you would want that line with your name in front of it. Jeff Baker was a man after God's own heart. I mean, that's all you really need in the Bible. One small moment, and that's what it says. That's what David got to carry about himself. Now, we find David showing up on the timeline of life in 1 Samuel chapter 16. That's a book that's in the Old Testament. Um, David, we find him. He is in Bethlehem. He's being raised by his father, Jesse. He's got a number of brothers. And David's on the scene because God has, a, God has uh, commissioned the, the prophet, Samuel, to go to this house. And God's saying to him, one of Jesse's sons is going to be the future king of Israel. I want him to be anointed, and I want him to be anointed now. So Jesse goes there. He goes through the list of the sons, oldest to youngest. None of them are the ones that God says. So Samuel turns to the father and he goes, don't you have another son? Yeah, he's out in the field, but he's just a boy. Go get him, brings him in. And sure enough, God says, that's the boy. That's the man. Anoint him as king. Now that doesn't mean he would instantly become king. What that means is that God's spirit literally that day in a physical sense came and rested on David and filled him on the inside with the anointing to one day be king. Now if God was doing that for this young boy David, he was doing it for a reason. And that's because the first king of Israel, his name is Saul, Saul had sinned against God. And God had removed his anointing off of Saul. Now, Saul's still serving in the position of king, but now he's serving in his own strength, serving with his own ideas. He's serving with his own torment that he brings upon himself and the enemy brings upon him. And it's so much that Saul says, guys, listen, I'm so tormented. My mind's going crazy. Something has changed. Yeah, God's anointed lifted off of you. When God's anointing lifts off of you, life gets a lot more difficult. And that's what happened to Saul. He says, guys, go get me some guy who plays the harp. I need somebody who plays the harp. I want them in my chambers playing the beauty of the harp. I want them singing. I want them to calm me. Who can do that? Lo and behold, guess who it is? This, the word's out on the street. We need a psalmist. The king's looking for a psalmist. He's looking for somebody who knows how to play. You know, in modern day language, he's looking for somebody who knows how to play a really sweet acoustic, right? And uh, we need a guy who knows how to play acoustic and knows how to, you know, lay down some pretty fat chords and knows how to sing a pretty good lick because the king's tormented and he wants some music. David, David's the guy. David plays the harp better than anybody. That's what they said. David writes songs. He's good at this. He's natural at it. So they recruit David. David's now playing the harp, playing the guitar, if you will, in the court of the king, soothing the king, ministering to the king. He and the king now are going to come into a face-to-face, one-on-one, name-to-name, you know, association. 
Now, the Israelites, shortly after that, they go out to battle and they're, you know, lined up in a valley. Uh, the, the enemy, the Philistines are on one side, the Israelites are on the other side. You got this character by the name of Goliath. He's a giant, he's a Philistine, and he's marching down into the valley a couple times a day. He's taunting the Israelites, he's blaspheming God, and he's doing this day after day after day. The Israelites are so scared of him that nobody wants to go down into the valley and battle with him. David, this little boy who the Bible says he killed lions and bears with his hands, and with the same hands, he knows how to make that guitar talk, right? Very gifted kid. He gets there to the, to the battle to check on people and to see what's going on. He's on assignment, and he hears this giant down there making all of these horrible statements about God and his people. And he goes, guys, somebody get down there and kill him. I mean, come on. Get down there, take him out. He shouldn't be allowed to do that. Well, we're all scared. We don't want to go. David goes, I'll go. So they try to put battle gear on him, but he's so small, none of the battle gear fits him. So he goes in the attitude that he is accustomed to as a shepherd out with sheep. He's got his sling. He goes down to the brook. He gets a few good stones. He gets down to where the king is at, as he, or excuse me, the giant's at. As he gets down into the valley, you can only assume, right? When you're looking down on somebody that's tall, think about when you're standing now toe-to-toe with them. When you look down on them, they didn't look that tall. They look that big, right? Because you're looking down on them. But now you're down on their level, he gets really big. David doesn't fear it. In fact, the Bible says that David got a stone and he started running towards the giant and he starts swirling it and he lets it go, hits him right between the eyes, drops him to the ground, goes over, gets his sword that's like as big as him and finishes him off. Pretty cool man story. They come marching back into town. Right? And all the people now, they've heard that man, the, the, the giant's been killed, the Philistines have fled. You know, man, we won, we're safe, we're not going to get invaded and raided and all that kind of stuff. This is awesome. And the people start erupting on the streets with this parade, and they start singing this song, and they start singing this. Hey, our king, Saul, he's killed his thousands, but this David guy, he's killed 10,000. Everyone's just celebrating, they're having a blast. But this King Saul, who had the anointing of God lift off of him, who's struggling through his leadership, all of a sudden becomes extremely jealous. And he says, they're singing what? I've killed my thousands, and David now? This little dude? He kills a giant, and they're they're singing, he's killed his tens of thousands? What does David want next? The kingdom? He can't get the thought out of him. And it just keeps boiling on the inside of him. The next day, David is in the throne room, you know, the chambers, and he's playing his harp, and he's doing his thing, and he's probably singing like he's never sung before, man, because people are just singing songs about him. He might be singing his own song. Saul's killed his thousands, and I've killed my 10,000. Hey, did you hear that? I've killed my 10,000. Who knows what he's singing? I don't know. It makes the king so mad, he picks up a spear, and he hurls at him. Like, he's trying to run it right through him and stick him to the wall. And David, David now is like a rock star, right? I mean, he's not just sitting down anymore singing. He's probably moving around a little bit like this, and he sees that spear, and he's like, whoa. He's like the modern-day rock star guitar player, right? Jumps out of the way. Can't kill him. So the king says, dude, what in the world? I just can't believe this. Here's what I'm going to do. All right, so you killed your tens of thousands. I'll give you a 1,000 troops, and I'm going to send you out to battles that you cannot win. That's what I'm going to do. I'll kill you out in the field. And so he sends him out there. Guess where? Everywhere David goes, he wins the battle. Everywhere he goes, he demolishes the enemy. It's backfiring on the king. He's trying to kill him, but David's favor just keeps raising with the people. His leadership keeps increasing. 
This is blowing everybody's mind away, right? And so that's not working. He brings him back, sticks him back into his, his chamber, and he says, play again for me. And while he's playing, he tries to catch him at that right moment, right? When he's looking at the strings, he takes the spear and hurls at him again, misses him again. So I don't know if David's really, you know, the rock star or Saul just doesn't know how to throw a spear. One of the two, not really sure what was going down there, but David gets the message. Well, I think this guy doesn't like me. Like he finally wakes up. I think this guy's trying to kill me. Like I think he doesn't want me around. And David flees to the wilderness, the Bible says. Well, the men that he had been leading know that David's trying to be killed, and they go out and they join him in the fields. Hundreds of them join him with their families, and they surround him, and they start being the eyes and ears for him, because Saul gathers an army, and he starts going out to hunt David down like he just can't live while David's still alive. He's got to kill this young guy. And so one day, He's being hunted, and they kind of have him trapped in this valley, and David and his men have kind of hid back in this cave. Saul comes into the cave. The Bible literally says this, all right? Here's my quoting of it. Saul comes into the cave to relieve himself, literally meaning comes in to go to the bathroom. I'm just saying, like, there's a few things that you want your name in the Bible about. Like, he's a man after God's own heart. You don't want your name in the Bible for, yeah, you know, he came into a cave and went to the bathroom. That's not what you want your name for in, a, in, in the Bible. You got it? So there's a couple of things there. And his fighting men are in the back of the cave, right? And they're like, David, this is your opportunity. Like, you should go up there. You should kill him now, man. Take the sword. Run it through him. You, you ever been in a cave and try to whisper in a cave? You don't whisper in a cave. Your words is like, echo, 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 echo. Kill him, kill him, kill him, kill him, kill him. <laughs> With the sword, 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 sword. I said, they're not... They're doing some kind of like third base baseball coaching thing. They're like, David sneaks up there. He takes his knife out. They're like, yes, this is the moment. People are like, you know, like that. He takes it and he cuts off a piece of his robe. And he comes crawling back. And they're like, what? Right? I will wring your neck. I can't believe what you're doing. Saul escapes. David's actually convicted about it because David knows something about the heart of God. He knows that God is the one who put the king in his position. God will be the one who removes him at the right time. It's not David's place to do that. David was called to serve the king. That's all he wanted to do. He wanted to love the king. He wanted to serve the king. He wasn't interested in killing the king. So David, after Saul comes out of the cave, walks down the valley a safe distance, David comes to the edge of the cave and says, Saul, why are you trying to kill me? This is Jeff Baker's paraphrased version. Why are you trying to kill me? Why do why you keep chasing me? What have I ever done to you? All I wanted to do is be loyal to you and serve you. I killed the giant for you. I'm for you, man. Look, see this? Check your robe. This is a piece off of your robe. God brought you right to my hands. If I wanted to kill you, I could have killed you. And he throws it to the ground and he goes, stop trying to kill me. Saul, when he recognized it was David's voice, he is broken on the inside and recognizes his foolishness. He wakes up and he grabs his guys and he walks away from David. Now, you might think at that moment that, wow, man, David, you got it made now. I mean, here you are. I mean, everything's cool, right? Just go make a home for yourself, live, and then one day he won't be king. And if you're supposed to be king, then God's anointing's on you. You'll be king, right? But that's not the way it goes down. It's just a short while after that, 
the word comes to Saul that David and his fighting men are once again close. This time David goes, this is it. I'm using this as my opportunity. Give me 3,000 of my most elite troops. I need the special ops team. He takes 3,000 to go out and hunt for him. He's camped in a valley opposite the side of where David's at. David takes one other man, two people. They walk down into the camp while they're all asleep at night. 3,000 of them. Saul's put himself right in the middle, and he's got 3,000 guys, special ops guys, all camped around him. David, in the middle of the night, sneaks through the 3,000. He makes his way to Saul while they're all sleeping. He's got a spear that's stuck next to his head on this side and a water jug on that side. And he takes both of the items and then he tiptoes his way back out with this other dude. They walk up to the top of the hill and then they make all kinds of ruckus and they wake up all 3,000. And basically does the exact same thing he did in the cave. Why are you chasing me? What have I done to you? Uh, man, forgive me for whatever I've done to you. Why are you trying to kill me? I've got the spear and the jug. Look, where were those things at just a second ago? They were right by your head. If I wanted to kill you, I could have killed you, but I didn't. You're God's appointed man. All I ever wanted to do was serve you and love you. Saul, once again, like the whole story all over again, wakes up and he walks away with his troops and he leaves David right there. David leaves the spear and the water jug and they take it with him. David's been in a dark room for a long time. He's been in a dark room he didn't choose. He's been in a dark room he doesn't understand. He's in a dark room that no one can explain to him. Why are you being hunted? He's been here for a long time. Right? That's a deep, dark place. And what David does next, after this very moment in 1 Samuel chapter 27, it gives us some things that you and me should never do when we're in the dark room. David David makes some very foolish decisions. This is what he does in 1 Samuel chapter 27, and then we'll break it down. It says, But David kept thinking to himself, Someday Saul's going to get me. The best thing I can do is escape to the Philistines. Then Saul will stop hunting for me in Israelite territory, and I will finally be safe. All of us are going to go through dark rooms. David went through a horrific dark room, but there's some things we need to avoid. Three of them are right here in this passage, right here, right now. The very first thing we have to avoid while in the dark room is this. Avoid the self-assessment. It's the very first thing. When you are in a dark room situation that you can't figure out, one of the things you do is you start reeling in your mind about what's going on and how did I get here and you know, how am I going to get out of here. It's exactly what David did. In fact, when we break down this passage, it says, but David kept doing what? Thinking to who? Himself. He turned everything inward instead of Godward. He went horizontal instead of vertical. Now, David, he actually followed through with what he said in you know, 1 Samuel chapter 27. He actually went and he lived with the enemy for 16 months. Now, David is a man after God's heart, but in 16 months, we don't have a recorded prayer from this guy. For 16 months, David is the chief guitar player, chief songwriter. We don't have a single song written in 16 months. What happens here? He starts thinking to himself, and thinking to himself is trusting in his heart. Instead of going vertical and trusting in God's heart, he starts trying to figure it all out up here. Every time you self-assess, it's going to end up in a destructive place. Why? Because your heart's wicked. Your heart's going to lie to you every single time. Your wisdom is never going to be as close to God's wisdom. Your eyesight can never see what God's doing. You can't see God's timing. You don't understand what God does in a lifespan. All you see is the pain of the moment in which you're living in. And if you keep self-assessing, here's what's going to happen, you're going to mislead yourself. 
just like the church, early church did when James was writing to them. And they said this to them, hey guys, so don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect comes down from our God, our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes. He never casts a shifting shadow. This is good advice for us to follow instead of self-assessing because when we face a dark room, self-assessment is going to mislead you. So what we have to do is we've got to lay down our horizontal humanistic thinking and we've got to turn vertical and go to God because God's not a shifting shadow, meaning God's not both evil and good, right? God has one plan and he's playing it out in your life and it's a good plan. It's a perfect plan. It's a plan that brings pleasure to him and it's going to bring pleasure to you, but you need to know something. Part of God's plan is that you and me are going to walk through dark rooms, or you're walking through one right now. So just remember this, right? Take your thoughts captive in the dark room. Take them to God, because I don't care how hard you think or how long you self-assess, you're never going to think your way out of God's dark room. You will only make it worse. It will mislead you every time. Don't trust in your heart. Go vertical and trust in God's heart. Avoid self-assessment. Here's another thing that we need to avoid based on that passage. We need to avoid predicting the negative future. How many times do you end up in a darkroom situation, right? It's, it's a challenging time, and it's so dark, all you can see is darkness when you look into your future. And you start thinking to yourself, like, where I'm at is where I'm going to live. It's only going to get worse from here. Well, that's exactly what David did. So that David was thinking to himself, and then someday Saul's going to come get me. You know what it means that Saul's going to come get me? He literally means this. Saul is going to come and kill me. Now that comes, guys, straight out of David's pain and his confusion. Because in the dark room, there's pain. In the dark room, there's confusion. You just can't figure it all out. So that's why the, that's why the temptation to start thinking to ourselves is there. But whenever we start predicting this negative outcome, it doesn't help our situation. It only makes ourself, our situation worse. And that's because you don't know what tomorrow brings. Like, you don't know what tomorrow holds. Only God knows what tomorrow holds. Listen to these two verses about that. One in Proverbs. Don't brag about tomorrow since you don't know what the day will bring. Now, that's one thing if it's prideful. Let's switch it up for a moment. Don't complain about tomorrow since you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring either. Like, you know what today is. Today might be a darkroom day, but tomorrow, who knows what tomorrow brings? Only God knows. And if we go from our internalized thinking to predicting the negative future, it's only going to make the situation worse. James also spoke about the issue, James chapter 4. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Question, right? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, and then it's gone. Guys, when we're in a darkroom moment, avoid predicting the negative future by being watchful for the, for the depression that seeps in. Depression seeps in. A lot of people go through a depressed state when they're going through a darkroom. God's trying to develop godly character, and the enemy's heaping all kinds of junk right onto your life at that very moment. And I know this, that our, our exaggerated statements, our exaggerated emotions, all they do is they snowball on us. And the dark room might be in a work situation, but all of a sudden, it's like the darkness starts shifting to our marriage, shifting to our parenting, shifting to our finances. It snowballs on us. And if you're in a dark room situation right now, and you're going through it, right? Listen, if you're in a depressed state, ask for some help. Every, we have grace for people going through difficult times that are dealing with depression. 
Go find a, a Christian counselor. Call up one of our pastors here. Go to your life group leader. Talk to them. Talk to a godly friend, right, that's in our church or in another church that you know is Christ-centered. Talk to somebody. Get off of the island by yourself because if you keep snowballing it, it just affects your entire life. And then we prolong the dark room. We make the dark room harder than what God ever intended for it to be. Some of us get stuck in the dark room because of things like that. So avoid predicting a negative future. Here's another thing to be watchful for. Be watchful for blaming yourself. Man, this is speaking right to me. I'm like stepping on my own toes when I'm talking about this. One of the most difficult things I have to wrestle with is blaming myself for the difficult situations that I deal with. Or how did I get here? And I look at all of the things I did to get myself there. You know, and I get hard on myself. I need people to come around me because one thing I know as a for fact situation that um, none of my negative predictions are going to make the situation any better. In fact, it only makes the team worse. It makes me worse. It makes my marriage worse. All of my negative predictions about where I'm at and how we got here and blaming me, blaming me. It turns, it makes it self-centered, by the way. You know, uh, you didn't want to, but it does it. And it, it just makes it worse. The situation never gets better. So here's something that I try to remind myself Sometimes I get it, sometimes I don't. I'm working hard on this one, all right? But instead of overreacting with negativity, how about we do what these verses say? And let's praise God that only he controls tomorrow. So today might be out of control. But you can praise God for tomorrow instead of predicting that tomorrow's gonna be worse than today. It's amazing how when you start praising God for, for the fact that only he controls tomorrow, it's amazing how you wake up tomorrow and the day's actually better although you're living in the same situation. It's interesting what God will do to our hearts when we start praising him for who he really is. One last thing we can learn from David from this passage, okay, it's this. Avoid rash decisions. When you're in a hard, difficult place, it's so easy for us to decide in this darkness where we can't see well and, you know, where we've been thinking to ourselves and we're predicting an outcome that's going to be worse than what God's got planned for us, it's easy for us to make a rash decision and go do something that we never should have done. That's just what happens. David did the same thing. He says, while he was thinking to himself that Saul is going to kill me one day, the best thing I can do is escape to the Philistines. Really? Like the best thing, David, that you can do is run from your people and run to the enemy? The Philistines? And guess where he runs when he runs to the Philistines? He runs to a town by the name of Gath. Now, if you're not a Bible scholar, that's okay. The town of Gath, that's where Goliath came from. You know the one who made him famous? Saul has killed his thousands. David's killed his ten thousands. He goes to Gath. Like, you know, they'll be better to me than my own people, won't they? I mean, I, I, I killed their hero. That's going to make a lot of sense, right? And that's where he runs. In his mind, thinking to himself and his negative predictions has caused him to make a decision that moves closer to the enemy than to God. That just baffles my mind. And one of the things that happens here that you need to be aware of, it's a warning to you. When you make rash decisions, they never affect you only. They always affect others. When David makes this rash decision to move to the enemy, it says in the Bible, 600 of his fighting men, their wives, their children, and all their possessions, they go with him to the enemy. And David, when he's with the enemy, goes and finds the king and tells the king, I'm here, I'm here to serve you. Not just live among you, I'm here to serve you. I'm telling you right now, when you make rash decisions, they're always going to cause you to move away from God, and you're going to move closer to the enemy. That's not going to help your thinking. Living in the enemy's camp, serving the enemy, when you're in a dark room, moving away from what God's trying to develop, to get out of it, 
and going to the enemy's camp is only going to make it worse. And for 16 months, David serves the king of the enemy. You're never going to make wise decisions when you're led by your emotions. Rash decisions, they have a way of making your dark room last longer. They have a way of making your dark room more difficult. Uh, Many of our dark rooms moments are extended because of our foolishness and our rash decisions that we make. We got to resist this. We got to walk away from this. Serving the enemy is not the answer to getting out of your dark room. Here is the answer, though. Romans chapter 12. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. Don't copy the behavior of horizontally trying to process the dark room when the dark room is a vertical experience with God. God, what's the character you're trying to build in me? Not just the pain that I see. That's a custom of the world to go horizontal. Don't go, don't go horizontal. Don't go the world's way and start predicting a negative outcome. That's always going to make tomorrow worse. Start trusting in God that he's got tomorrow in your hands. Don't, don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world by moving closer to the enemy when you're dealing with a difficult moment. Move closer to God. Look, but let God transform you into a what? That's what we should be doing as Christ-centered people, as people who want to know God. We should be moving closer to God and saying, God, make me into a new person by changing the way you what? It goes all the way back to the self-assessment. It all starts there when we start thinking to ourselves instead of processing it with God. But when God changes us from, into a new person, he changes the way we think, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, right? It's pleasing, and it's perfect. It's then that you start to get that. So watch this. David, as a boy, is anointed as king. As he's growing up, he's reminded, you're anointed as king. You're anointed as king. David, one day, you're going to sit on the throne. One day, you're going to be the king of this nation. One day, you're going to be our ultimate leader. David knows this now in his life. He's heard this many times. Instead of hanging on to that, he changes his ideas and starts thinking about and focusing on the worst. And in the dark room, the dark room, it warps your thinking And you begin to lose sight of God's pleasing, perfect, and good will for your life. So if you're here today and you're going through a dark room and you've made a rash decision, let me just say this to you. Stop right where you're at, repent, turn 180 degrees and walk away. David, when he made his first rash decision, we're going to go live with the enemy. As soon as he crossed the line from God's territory to the enemy's territory, he should have woke up right then and said, 600 guys and all the families, let's turn around. I'm leading you in the wrong way. I'm so sorry. I made a rash decision. Let's turn it around. Let's repent. No, that's not what he does. And when he gets to the the town of Gath and he sees the town of Gath, he should have gone, oh, guys, I've led you in the wrong direction. Let's turn around. Let's go back. And when he's sitting in front of the king and he's telling the king of an enemy, of enemy people, the Philistines, hey, I'll serve you. He should have woke up and go, no, I won't. And I'd walk back out of there and grab his guys. But instead, he let his pride get in the way, his pain, his confusion, his depression, his thinking to himself, his negative predictions. And he let all of that fuel him. And he just made one rash decision to get leading to another, to another, to another, to another. Just because you make one rash decision in the dark room doesn't mean you have to keep going down that path. You can turn around and change. So the dark room, it's going to mess with the way you think. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But we all need God to transform us into that new person. That's where I want to direct you today. The new person in the way you think, 
you love, you live, in your motives, right? Um, in your decisions that you make, in your morals, and even in salvation. Some of you here listening to my voice today, you need God to transform you into a new person spiritually. Like you need the old you gone and the new Jesus to come and live inside of you. Like you need to let Jesus be your Lord and your leader. But listen, if you've lost sight, if you've lost sight of this in the dark room, God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, if you lost sight of it because of the dark room, here's good news. Run to God today. He's here. Grab a hold of him. Take charge of this moment. Grab a hold of Jesus. Turn your conversation vertical with him. Repent to him. Get close to God today. Avoid these horrific mistakes that you know, pro- prolong the dark rooms and make them harder. Let's learn the, chi- the Christ-centered character God has for us so he can eventually put us on the stage and we can shine bright for him. Why don't you stand with me and let's pray today. Lord, I am so grateful and thankful that although we go through deep, dark moments, you have a plan for our life. Wake us up, Lord, from the things that we're doing that are prolonging the dark room. We're making it darker than what it needed to be. We're making it more difficult than what it needed to be. Lord, we need to avoid these things. Your servant David showed it to us all in one simple little verse. Avoid it. Walk away from it. Grow close to you, God, and you will deliver us through the dark room because you've got a beautiful stage that you want the testimony of our life to shine brightly for the world to see. Lord, don't let my heart grow bitter. Don't let our hearts grow weary. God, don't let us wander away from you, but let us grow close to you, God. Let us bring our broken and our contrite hearts and run close to you and let you deliver us and set us free in these moments of dark rooms that we all go through. In Jesus' name, amen.